So Jesus, help us to see you where you are. Lord Jesus, when we, we see where you are and how you are, it'll probably kill us. You'll have to raise us from the dead. But we want to see you. It's in your name that we pray and ask you to help us preach. Amen. Well, uh, this sermon is number five in our series, Jesus Everywhere. Um, Remember, we've been looking at this cartoon, and you can watch the other messages online at, uh, at the website. Several years ago, while I was a youth pastor at a megachurch in California, something amazing happened at our church family camp. It was during the sharing time. A woman got up, and she told how she was in her backyard uh, doing some gardening when the phone rang. As she ran to get the phone, she noticed uh, a movement in her swimming pool and she saw her toddler at the bottom of the pool drowning. And so she shared how she jumped in the pool, saved the life of her toddler, and then she said, God made that phone ring. And everybody there praised God for his salvation. The next woman that stood up said the exact same thing happened to me. And the phone didn't ring. And my son died. Why is that? (laughs) Where's the justice in that? Why is it that some people are underprivileged and homeless and out of work, living on the street, and some people are dressed in Brooks Brothers suits and stockbrokers working in skyscrapers. Why is that? What's the reason for that? Several thousand years ago, a man named Job lost all his children to murder. Seven sons and three daughters. And then he lost a whole bunch of servants, He lost 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys all in a day. That's a bad day for no apparent reason. Soon after, he was attacked with painful or afflicted with painful sores all over his body and afflicted with a wife who nagged him, saying, Job, just curse God and die as he sat on a pile of ashes, scraping his sores with potsherds. That was a bad marriage. Curse God and die. I mean, he must have been thinking, why don't you die? Everybody else died. The life of Job, which is the life of unexplained suffering. The life of Job is the world's best argument against the existence of a good God and a just God. Why does Job suffer. Why do you suffer? Well, Job has three friends that come and visit him, as Rob Bell mentioned in that video we saw a minute ago. Uh, Seven days and seven nights, they just sit there and they say nothing. After seven days and seven nights, Job lifts his face to the heavens and he cries out, God, why don't you kill me? Kill me. Why can't I die? Then his friends begin to speak. They defend God for for 34 chapters. They go back and forth, them, them and Job. They present the classical arguments that religious people use to explain why a good and just God allows or even perhaps causes, because if he's all powerful, even if he allows it, it's like he causes. Why does he allow suffering? Uh, Chapter four, verse eight, Eliphaz says, Job, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. But but that that begs a question, doesn't it? What what can we sow? Farmer sows seed. Can you make a seed? You reap what you sow. When most people say you reap what you sow, I think they mean you get what you deserve. What can we deserve? I mean, what could we deserve it with? You get, you get what you deserve. Isn't that what most people call justice? 
you get what you deserve. What could we deserve it with? Eliphaz would say our choices, our free will. Late one night when I couldn't sleep, I was watching uh, the Reverend Bob Tilton raise money on television. And he quoted Job 22, verse 27, saying, you will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter and it will be established for you. Hallelujah, Job 22, verse 27. Now, Reverend Bob didn't mention that that was Eliphaz speaking. And uh, scripture was quoting Eliphaz. It was Eliphaz that spoke those words. You see, uh, Reverend Bob agrees with Eliphaz. If only you tie it to a TV evangelist, Job, <laughs> this probably wouldn't be happening to you. If only if you got up off the couch and decided to call this number and make your vow, Peter, you, you could go to sleep. See, that's how human religion works. We religious types give you some knowledge of good and evil. We give you some law so that you can make choices, right? Choices, because of course you get what you deserve. And that's what most people want. Pastor, tell me what's good, tell me what's evil, give me some law so I can make good choices and save myself from suffering. Because God is just. Get what we deserve. You know, I think an awful lot of folks that call themselves Christians would really be more comfortable in Islam or maybe Judaism. In the old covenant, the covenant of law, God basically says, okay, you want knowledge of good and evil? Here you go, this is the law. If you do this stuff, I'll give you stuff. If you don't, you'll lose it. That's the covenant of law. Job, this is interesting, Job is in what we call the Old Testament, but Job was not in the Old Covenant. It appears that Job lived uh, before the giving of the law, and he lived outside of the group to whom the law was given, the Jews. It appears that Job wasn't a Jew. Well, Job's friends, they, they argue that his suffering must be the result of his bad choices. That's the, that's the free will argument, and, and there's something to it, right? I mean, you, you make bad choices and, and stuff happens. They argue, uh, this must be the result of your bad choices, a free will argument, and then when that doesn't work, they argue that God sent the suffering to fix some deficiency in Job. That's called the character building argument, and I basically preached it last week, saying we are afflicted that we may be affected and so learn affection. That's that's love, and I, and I really think that that's true. But Job argues. He argues saying, I'm not suffering because of bad choices I made, and I'm not suffering because of the bad person that I am. Job 13.3, he says, though God slay me, I, I will hope in him, says Job. I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. I'll be honest with God. 27 verse 6, he says, I hold fast my righteousness. Chapter 30 verse 1, they laugh at me. They, they, they mock me. Though God slay me, I will hope in him. It's like for 34 chapters, in all these different ways, it's like Job continually cries out, my God, my God, why have have you forsaken me? Yet, into your hands I surrender my spirit. Well, in chapter 38, after all this arguing, the Lord appears and speaks to Job out of a whirlwind, saying, who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? And then God questions Job. You gird up your loins and I'll question you. He questions Job about creation, saying stuff like, were you there when I made the stars, Job? Were you there uh, in the storehouses of the rain? Were you there when I made ostriches? 39 verse nine, listen to this line, it's so great. He says, is the wild ox willing to serve you, Job? Will he spend in the night at your manger. <laughs> what a line. God appears and questions Job until Job answers. 42 verse 1, he answers, now my eyes see you. Now my eyes see you and I despise myself. My judgments, I repent. The word can also be translated comfort myself. I comfort myself in dust and ashes. Then, God says something totally shocking. 
He says, I'm furious with you, Eliphaz, and your friends. For you spoke what is wrong about me, whereas my servant Job spoke what is right. And so Job, this is what I'm telling you to do. You pray for these guys, Job, so I don't give them what they deserve. They're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong about me, says God. You know, I've known a lot of folks that have really, really, really suffered. And perhaps their greatest suffering has been religious folks that try to explain the reason for all their sufferings. I mean, why is it that religious folks are so desperate to explain other people's sufferings? Or maybe they themselves are terrified to suffer. But they don't trust God. They don't trust God. So what do they trust? They trust their knowledge of God and their own ability to make choices because they believe a person gets what they deserve. So if they can't fix your suffering or explain your suffering, they'll blame you for your suffering. For otherwise, they might have to admit people get what they don't deserve and it looks like none of us are in control of God. Well, God says... They're wrong about me. And my servant Job spoke what is right about me. God restored Job's fortunes. You remember that? Twice as much as he ever had before. And then the book ends. Just ends. All those explanations were wrong somehow in some way. And we know they're partly right because we see them in other places in Scripture. But they were all wrong somehow. And God never seems to explain anything to Job. Yeah. I've read uh, books on Job. In seminary, I took a whole class on uh, the book of Job. For a long time, I thought the point of, of the book of Job was this. We just don't know why Job suffered. You know, that's the politically correct answer. We just, we just don't know. The only problem with that answer is that it's wrong. <laughs> because the book tells us exactly why Job suffered. It's right there in the prologue. Now, Job didn't know that's part of his suffering. But we do. And guess what? Job was right. He did not suffer because he's bad. And he did not suffer because he had made bad choices. This is why he suffered. He's blameless. Upright and blameless. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, most Bible scholars think that the land of Uz is probably the land of Edom. And remember, Edom is Esau. A few weeks ago, we preached about Esau. Remember, like Esau, Job is loved with hate. Somehow. 16 verse 9, Job says, God hated me. And God says, Job spoke what is right about me. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> Loved him with hate. That's, that's weird. Well, anyway, Job, in Edom, in Edom, Job knew about God. It must have been through the things that have been made, as Paul puts it, because it wasn't through the law. He knew. He, he knew somehow God is creator. God is good. And God is is just, verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him, God, and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hand and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him, do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Notice that Satan has to get permission from God, and yet God grants it. 
Ah! And thus, marauding warriors, natural disasters destroyed Job's children and, and all his possessions. Verse 20, then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshiped. Saying, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then Satan appears to God again, and Satan says, well, God, he still has his health. And God says, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. Chapter 2, verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Job, curse God and die. <laughs> Great marriage. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So why did Job suffer? The prologue tells us. But for some reason, we never seem to pay much attention to, to the prologue. We never seem to take it seriously. Perhaps that's because we don't take the spiritual realm very seriously. Perhaps it's because we don't like being portrayed as lab rats, right? Which is kind of ironic because most religion portrays us as lab rats, that God is up there testing us, his creation. He's testing his creation to find out if his creation is good or bad. He's testing us like lab rats. It reminds me of one of these... Uh, old movies is about these two old powerful men named Randolph and Mortimer Duke who run an experiment with two men's lives just to find out if it's man's nature to be good or if man is simply controlled by his environment. It's called trading places. Remember? Dan Aykroyd plays Winthorpe, a respected stockbroker, and Eddie Murphy plays Billy Ray Valentine, an underprivileged con man. Trading places. Is there a problem, officers? What in heaven's name is going on here? He tried to rob the payroll, Randolph. He attacked me in broad daylight. I didn't do nothing, man. This guy bumped into me. I did not. You knocked me down and tried to grab my briefcase. Yeah, but it was an accident, man. An accident? Really? What's going to happen to this man? We're going to book him. An assault, attempted robbery, and resisting arrest. You have a history of juvenile arrests, I presume, drug abuse, reform schools, state prisons, and all that? Yeah, I ain't talking to this guy. I want a lawyer. Is there a lawyer in the house? <clears throat> that man is a product of a poor environment. There's absolutely nothing wrong with him. I can prove it. And given the right surroundings and encouragement, I'll bet that that man could run our company as well as your young Winthorpe. Are we talking about a wager, Randolph? I suppose you think Winthorpe, say if he were to lose his job, would resort to holding up people on the streets? No, I don't think just losing his job would be enough for Winthorpe. I think we'd have to keep a little more misfortune on those narrow shoulders. He lost his job and his home and his fiance and his friends. If he were somehow disgraced and arrested by the police and thrown in jail even. Yes, I'm sure he'd take the crime like a fish to water. You'd have to put him in the wrong surroundings, of course, with the worst sort of people. I mean real scum, Randall. We've done it before. This time it's in a good cause. How much do you want to bet? The usual amount. Why not? They bet a dollar. And then they wait to see what Valentine and Winthorpe will do. Is that what God does? Is that what Satan does? Does God know what we will do? Yeah, it's all over the Bible, over and over and over and over again. He knows. Does God know what Job will do? Yeah, of course. Does Satan know? 
what Job will do. Doesn't appear so. But God does. So you see, God is not testing Job in order to learn some truth. God is testing Job in order to exhibit truth to Satan. God is betting far more than a dollar. He's betting his honor. God desires a champion, not a lab rat, a champion. The original meaning of that word champion is one who defends another's honor. In England, the office of the king's champion was filled by a knight in full armor who would ride into Westminster Hall during the coronation and challenge anyone to single combat who would dispute the right of the king to rule. The champion defended the king's honor. At Elitch's, Kittyland several years ago. I put my three-year-old daughter, Becky, on this ride with these little airplanes that had machine guns and stuff like that. And uh, as the ride started, there was this other little girl on the ride who started uh, pointing her machine gun at me, you know, and going, pretending that she was shooting me. When the ride was over, my daughter, Becky, was just furious. She went up to this little girl and she said, please don't shoot my daddy. He's the only one we've got, and we love him very much. <laughs> Becky was my champion. What a strange champion, but my favorite. Remember when the Philistines fought Israel? Uh, they were mocking God, and uh, do you remember they had a champion? Remember that? Do you remember his name? No, their champion was Goliath. <laughs> yeah, well, you're on the right track, though. Yeah, and Goliath means splendor or glory, but Israel, God, Yahweh, had no champion until God chooses a shepherd boy, a child named David. David. Yeah, good job, Steve. David. But, but a strange little champion, right? Not what anybody would expect, but he had a heart for God, a love for God. What kind of champion is a child? Best. A little child shall lead them, son of David. When my kids were little, you see, they, they didn't even know uh, what I did. And yet they knew who I am. All sorts of people have championed me for what I've, I've done. Sermons I've preached, things I've said, degrees that, that I've earned. They've championed me for a reason, championed me for a reason other than me. So didn't really champion me, they, they used me. And yeah, of course, I, I used them too. They loved me for a reason other than me, and so didn't actually love me. But my kids know me. Love me. For who I am. When a child loves what the father gives more than who the father is, that child is spoiled and miserable. In this picture, uh, that's Becky on the right, Elizabeth on the, on the left. In this picture, Becky's looking at me, Elizabeth's looking at me too, and they're happy. They're delighting in me. That's my glory on their face. Well, I remember how I'd come home from a busy day where people loved me for all sorts of reasons and Becky would come running and love me for no reason but me. Her little arms wrapped around my neck at the end of the day just felt like heaven. She was and is my champion, my, my glory. She knows who I am. Hey, do you uh, remember... Satan's challenge. We, we, just, we just read it a few moments ago. God has bragged on Job like a proud papa bragging on his only son, and Satan says, uh, God, does he fear you for no reason? Now that can be translated, does he honor you for no reason? But you see, um, Satan doesn't understand. He doesn't comprehend love. He understands fear. Does he fear you no, for, for no reason? Fear is the beginning of wisdom, says Scripture, but perfect love casts out fear. So do you hear the challenge in, in God's ear? Does, does Job love you for no reason, says Satan? 
Of course he loves you. you. You work for him, God. You give everything to him, God. He loves you for that reason. He loves you for a reason, which means he doesn't love you. He uses you. No one actually loves you, God. Actually, there is no such thing as love. Only lust, only desire, only hunger, only threats and promises, only fear and desire. They only serve you because you threaten them with hell and you bribe them with heaven. God, you're just like me. Only bigger. There's no such thing as love. Which is to say, there's no such thing as you. You know, Scripture says that God is love. And it says that God is the creator. That means God is love without reason. For he is the reason. Love caused the Big Bang. Love is the ground of all being. There is no reason for love, and love has no reason other than itself. It's necessary beingness. In sounds it's the non-contingent necessary thing. Love has no reason other than itself. Love is the reason. Love is the logos. God is love, and God is the creator. That means God is grace. And you cannot deserve him. And all things are great. So you cannot deserve anything. And that means that justice cannot mean people getting what they deserve. Or what could they deserve? And what would they deserve it with? Dang, you're created. You didn't even deserve you. Justice cannot mean people get what they deserve because people deserve nothing. And then justice would be nothing. You see, grace destroys our fallen sense of justice. Uh, that is, grace destroys the power of the law. Grace undoes the curse of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Grace destroys the power of the accuser who is Satan, grace literally burns Satan like fire because it is consuming fire. God is grace. So what does Satan want? You see, Satan wants what fallen men call justice. He wants people to get what they deserve. And what do they deserve? Nothing. Evil is a nothing. An infection on the something. It's desecration on creation. It's death, the absence of life. It's darkness, the absence of light. It's lies, the absence of truth. Evil is the absence of grace, right? It's the absence of love, which means evil is the absence of God, and that is not justice. Justice is not nothing. Justice is not people getting what they deserve. Job 41, 11, out of the whirlwind, God speaks, declaring the glory of his creation, and then he says, Job, who has first given to me? In the King James, who has prevented me? Who has first done anything? Who has first given to me? Who has prevented me that I should repay him? That he should deserve anything. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. It's all grace. There's nothing to deserve and nothing to deserve it with. So listen very closely. Justice is not people getting what they deserve for they deserve nothing, and then justice would be nothing. Justice is not people getting what they deserve. Justice is God getting what God deserves. And what does God deserve? All glory and all honor. And what does God want? 
Genesis chapter one, Adam, mankind, humanity, in his own image and likeness. Justice is not satisfied by hell. Justice is satisfied by heaven. Man in God's image, the image of love. Justice is satisfied when God gets what God wants. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, man, Adam, the image and glory of God. So now, do you hear Satan's challenge? God, I've been walking the earth. I've been walking among them. And there are no men. God, there are no people who love you in freedom. Only religious people, only scribes and Pharisees who love you for a reason. They get paid to love you. They have purposes for love you. Only scribes and Pharisees who take you and use you, but, but none that love you in freedom. None in your image. And God says, Satan, consider my servant, Job. So Job loses everything, falls on the ground, and in chapter 1, verse 20, worships. Crying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When you worship God in the midst of your suffering, you are the glory of God, the image of God, champion of God. Love for no reason is the reason for Job's Suffering, love for no reason, is, is the reason. It's the substance and glory of God. And you are his testimony, the testimony of God. And not just to people. I guess that's the thing that we forget because people call me and ask me this question, say this to me. I ask myself this question. I, I, you know, maybe you've said it. You've said, God, I understand the purpose of St. Paul's sufferings, you know. I mean, I see this in the Bible. Everybody reads it. It's really cool. I understand the purpose of martyr sufferings and, and mission suffering. But God, I suffer and I suffer alone. And nobody knows. Nobody sees. Wrong. God knows, and God sees. And when you worship in the midst of your suffering, you fill him with joy like nothing else. It's his glory on your face, his glory in you. God sees your sufferings, and check this out. Satan sees your sufferings. And when he sees your faith, your hope, and your love in the midst of sufferings, it burns him like fire. Because it is fire. It's the glory of God in you. This is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, writes Paul in Ephesians chapter three. In God who created all things, that through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. When you don't understand why God asked you to do something or not do something, but you obey in faith, that's like suffering, isn't it? Obedience, when you don't understand and you don't know why he's asking you to do it. When you obey in faith because you love him. When you're suffering alone and he doesn't do, God doesn't do what you ask, but alone in the closet you worship him anyway just because of who he is. When you're stripped, beaten, forsaken, you don't know why, and yet into his hands you still surrender your spirit, well then you proclaim the wisdom of God to angels. They long to look. And you defeat the power of hell and burn the prince of darkness with glory. Your seemingly unimportant private little life is of the utmost importance. Chapter seven, Job cries out to God saying, God, just leave me alone. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him and test him every moment? What is man? What is it? What is man? Answer, man is the image and glory of God. Job. You are God's champion. Believers who suffer, I'm talking to you. We are the champions, my friends. 
And we'll keep on fighting till the end. We are the champions. We are the champions. We are the champions of our God. <laughs> Say, hmm. Sounds like it hurts. I don't know that I'm really up for that. Check it out. Job, Job didn't know that he was really up for it either. Chapter 4, verse 17, he asked, Can mortal man be right before God? Can he be pure before his maker? Mortal man. And so if Job really is blameless, if Job is righteous, well, maybe it's not his righteousness, but some kind of immortal righteousness in him, somebody else in him or something. Or maybe Job is a picture of someone else. I mean, that's all kind of a mystery, isn't it? But the psalmist testifies none is righteous. No, not one. None is good. No, not even one. And that means none had proven Satan wrong or vanquished God's honor up to that point in the psalms long after Job. You know, even in that old movie, Trading places, the experiment reveals it's not man's nature to be good. For when the environment changes, you remember the movie, the men change, right? The crook looks like a respected businessman. And when Winthorpe is forced to suffer, he becomes a deranged, crazy crook. I don't know if you can see that. He's dressed in a Santa Claus outfit, holding a gun in the rain. Goodness was not his nature. Each was a slave to the happenstance of this world until on Christmas Eve, now this is wild, on Christmas Eve, they see the truth and the truth sets them free. Everything changes. On Christmas Eve, a new nature is born into this world. A new nature is born into our manger. But before, none is righteous. No, not one. And it appears that Job knew that. And he, and he longed for something else. Even now, Job says in chapter 16, even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God. There's this intercessor who pleads with God on our behalf as one pleads for a friend. And then chapter 19, oh, that my words were written in a book. Isn't that great? We're reading the book. Oh, that my words were written in a book. For I know that my Redeemer lives and at last he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then from my flesh I shall see God. And at the end of the book, what happens? Job sees God. God does not give an explanation. God gives himself. Job sees God, and yet check this out, it like kills him. And yet he lives. Job sees God, and then he exclaims, chapter 42, verse 2, now I know now I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent myself in dust and ashes. And you gotta wonder, what did Job see? You know, John writes, no one has ever seen God. Now that's the Gospel of John, and John had read the book of Job, I'm sure, many, many times. No one has ever seen God. God, the only Son in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. What did Job see? Job must have seen God's champion, the perfect champion, Son of God, Son of man. You know, Satan's challenge was not answered until God said, Satan, have you considered my servant Jesus? Until on the cross, Jesus was loaded with all of Job's 
sin, all of Job's suffering, all of your sin, all of your suffering, all the world's sorrow, and Satan unleashed all his rage until on the cross, Jesus was delivered up to Satan for the destruction of our flesh until Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, he was blameless and yet he didn't know. In that moment, he didn't know why he suffered. Why have you forsaken me? He didn't know, but he worshiped. From the pit of hell, he worshiped, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet into your hands, I commit my spirit. On the cross, our Lord loved God for no reason but God. And now God sends the spirit of our Lord into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, he's born in us. Christmas, Christ in us, that we might be made in his image, his very body, champions for God. Satan's challenge wasn't answered. God's honor was not vanquished. God's justice was not satisfied until Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, Job must have seen God's champion, seen that in Christ God loved without limit, that in Christ God traded places with us, that in Christ God cursed God on our behalf, that God damned God on our behalf. Uh, his wife said, Job cursed God and die, and God cursed God on our behalf. In Christ, God also honored God on our behalf. He spoke our words to God on our behalf. In Christ, God made himself our champion, that we would become his champion. He saw that God was in Christ, in Job, suffering. Job saw him, died to himself, died to justifying himself, and lived to God, justified by grace, God's champion. And now you may say, wow, that's pretty wild, neato theology, fine, whatever, but come on, um, does God really need champions? I mean, we're talking God here. Why would God need a champion? Well, I, I, to be honest, I, I'm not sure that he does. But one day we'll see. There is no greater joy than being God's champion. We all champion something, right? Honor something. Worship something. Seek to lose ourselves in, in something. But we are made to be God's champions. In 1990, I had this incredible opportunity to travel to Romania right after the revolution and helped train pastors and church leaders who were nearly uh, kind of liberated from the regime. I don't think though I, I have ever seen such suffering as I did in Romanian society in October of 1990. I mean it was literally like an entire nation had been raped, raped of what it means to be human. All, except a few. All had suffered under the communist dictator, but a few had suffered for Christ. And this was the wild thing. You could literally spot them like 100 yards away because they were the only people that smile. I'll never forget what one of them said, my friend Cornell. In the last few years, it feels like God reminds me of what Cornell said every few days. This one night, we ate at Cornell's house, and after dinner, he pulled down this box, took us into the living room, pulled down this box from uh, up in the corner. He, he held it like it was sacred. In fact, it was like a sanctuary. Inside the box were pictures of Cornell's young wife. He held it so tenderly, so gently as he pulled out the pictures and showed it to us. His face glowed as, as he spoke of her. You can make out um, her features in the face of Cornell's daughter who came in to kiss us goodnight before she went to bed. A few years before, Cornell's wife had been diagnosed with leukemia. He prayed fervently, he said, but God didn't heal her. 
He read every medical textbook he could find on leukemia, hoping to do something, finding a way to help her. Finally, through Christians in Great Britain, it was, uh, uh, they, they arranged and paid for a bone marrow transplant. All they needed now was an exit visa. The authorities said to Cornell and his wife, they said, uh, Cornell, we'll grant it. As long as you inform on the other pastors in your underground church and renounce your faith. Remember Cornell sharing with me, Brother Peter, it was so hard. They had already persecuted me, tormented me, radiated my house threatened me. Cornell lived in a house where the former pastor had literally been uh, electrocuted by the secret police. They attached power lines to the drain pipe. Well, Cornell and his wife decided what to do. Remember him saying, Brother Peter, it was the hardest day of my life. It was the day shortly after the revolution when he held his 30-year-old wife in his arms as she slowly passed from this world to the next, leaving behind Cornell and his little girl. When he told this story to my friend Steve, and as Cornell showed Steve the box of pictures, Steve started to cry. Steve started to cry, and Cornell looked at Steve with compassion, and he said this, Brother Steve, please don't be sad. It's a privilege to suffer for Jesus. Cornell was God's champion. Because God's champion was alive in Cornell. Why do you suffer? Maybe you're God's champion. If you suffer with faith, you are. And God looks as Satan, and he says, have you considered my servant? And he says your name. What did Job see in that whirlwind? Something like this. That on the night he was betrayed. The only blameless man that has ever lived. On the night that he was betrayed by everyone. Delivered up to the evil one with our sin. Uh, on the night that he was betrayed by and for everyone that has ever lived or ever will live, Jesus the Christ, God's champion, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. And now this seems kind of silly to say, but it's true. This is the breakfast of champions. <laughs> That's right. This is what champions eat. This is what nourishes champions. We love because he first loved us. God's champion. And your champion. We become his body. So come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The brown cups are wine, the light cups are juice. They are both the love of God, the life of God, the unreasonable reason, I mean the ground of all being, God's glory poured out for and into you. And then let's worship in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go to war, okay? And let's do it right now. And this is how I want you to do it, right where you are. Close your eyes. And I want you to think about this past year. I want you to think about maybe all of your life. I want you to think about your suffering. Where have you suffered? 
Where are you suffering? Maybe someone died. Maybe you lost everything. Maybe you lost friends, maybe you lost honor, maybe you lost respect, maybe you have a wife that just will not stop nagging you. (laughs) But where are you suffering? Maybe it's a sin. You know, your obedience is a form of suffering, isn't it? And when you surrender that sin, it becomes God's sin, it becomes his, and it becomes, he bears the suffering with you, and even that uh, is suffering that um, is, is somehow according to his purpose. You see, actually, your suffering is not a mistake. So I want you to think of your suffering. In some form, it's this reality that God has given and taken away And now you're sitting there on a pile of ashes. And this is how we go to war. Now, you you might have to say this as a discipline. I mean, an exercise of faith, but just say it in your heart. Say, Lord God, thank you. And blessed be your name. It's your suffering in me. And I praise you. Now, you, you surrender your suffering and yet you still may have this question. I mean, because we surrender our suffering every day in prayer or whatever, and yet this question still comes, doesn't it? It goes, but God, why? I mean, why? Well, if you just surrendered it, if you just said that prayer, I want you to hear what God says to you because I really believe he says this to you. And he says it to you as a person. So I want you to hear him say your name, okay? so. God looks down at you and he says your name. And you say, why? And he says, because you are my champion. Now if you're you're like me, you immediately want to go, but I don't deserve that. Listen to what he says. Of course not. You cannot bear that weight of glory until you see that even that is grace. I have made you in my image. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel and live.